Hello, and thank you for joining us on this new podcast. Today, we're going to be talking about exercise-induced asthma. Our guest is Dr. Jonathan Parsons. He's the director of the Ohio State University Asthma Center. This is a podcast sponsored by the Assembly of Allergy, Immunology, and Inflammation of the American Thoracic Society. Thank you for joining us today, Jonathan. Thanks for having me, Jose. So I would like to get a little bit more of your opinion about uh, what is exercise-induced asthma. And do you think exercise-induced asthma is a feature of asthma, or should we consider that, that as a distinct entity? Yeah, that's a great question. The reality is that patients who have underlying chronic asthma, uh, most of them will identify at some point in time that they've had exercise trigger their symptoms. So I do think exercise-induced asthma in that sense is a feature of underlying asthma. But alternatively, there also is a population of patients that really don't have any of the chronic features of asthma and only have symptoms when they're provoked by exercise. And for that reason, we've sort of gotten away from terming this syndrome is exercise-induced asthma because of that, that population of patients that don't have the other features of asthma. And we started calling it exercise-induced bronchoconstriction, which is more of a inclusive term that would be appropriate for everybody. That's an excellent distinction. In terms of the specific mechanisms that drive symptoms in exercise-induced mm -hmm. bronchoconstriction, and asthma that is exacerbated with exercise. Do you see any specific mechanisms that drive this? That's a great question. We've been looking at mechanistic studies for quite some time related to exercise and asthma. The events that trigger exercise-induced bronchoconstriction are really not fully understood, but what we do know is that there are inflammatory mediators, uh, for example, histamine, leukotrienes, tryptase that are released into the airways from cellular sources, namely mast cells and eosinophils during uh, the syndrome. Also, the epithelium of the upper airway likely plays a role as well, and maybe the trigger that leads to the recruitment of these cellular sources that eventually release these inflammatory mediators. And finally, it looks like there may be some role for the sensory nerves uh, of the upper airway that may also play a role. So the reality is all these issues likely are together leading to the development of exercise-induced bronchoconstriction, but we still have a lot of work to do to try to uh, play that out even more. So thinking about how we can target those distinct mechanisms that drive exercise-induced bronchoconstriction, do you have any specific recommendations besides conventional management of asthma that we can incorporate? Let's say, for example, if the, these patients have some allergic background, do they benefit from something like antihistamines in addition to their asthma therapies? Yeah, that's a great question as well. I, I feel like their further research is likely needed to investigate into the reason why the mast cells and eosinophils are recruited into the airways of these uh, people who, ex who are susceptible to EIB. Also, it may be in terms of possible down-the-line therapeutic targets looking at the sensory nerve issue, whether or not neurokinin receptor antagonists or other neuromodulators might be effective in managing EIB as well. Certainly, if patients have allergic-type symptoms in conjunction with EIB, then treatment with conventional antihistamines and uh, other allergic treatment is warranted. And we did mention that in our consensus statement that in those patients who have allergies that antihistamines are suggested to be initiated. Is there any role for the use of bronchodilators before exercise? And if that's the case, what's the best timing to administer them? 
short-acting bronchodilators are really the gold standard treatment for most patients with exercise-induced bronchoconstriction. Two puffs roughly of a short-acting beta agonist 15 to 20 minutes before an exercise session is typically 80% effective in attenuating or preventing episodes of exercise-induced bronchoconstriction from occurring. There are patients that require more additional therapy or more aggressive therapy, but everybody who has this syndrome should have access at all times to a short-acting bronchodilator for rescue purposes and also for prophylaxis before exercise. So in addition to pharmacologic measures, we also know that other things like diet uh, has significant effects on exercising this bronchoconstriction. We know that meals with low sodium content affect this uh, specific syndrome. When, when you're talking to your patients, besides low sodium content foods, do you have any other dietary recommendations? Uh, yeah, so I haven't found personally that most athletes are able to adhere strictly to a low-sodium diet, but it has been shown in multiple studies to have an attenuating effect on the severity of EIB. So certainly there isn't much of a risk to embark on a low-sodium diet. So if, an, if a patient is interested, I certainly uh, advocate for that. Also, fish oil or omega-3 fatty acid supplementation has been shown to have some effect as well, as has vitamin C supplementation in some smaller studies. Um, none of these dietary modifications have really been played out in larger clinical trials, but they all have low risk. So if an, if an athlete is interested in trying these, um, I'm certainly supportive. When you're talking to an athlete that is interested in also minimizing the effect of EIB in their performance, and they, they want to incorporate some interventions that are non-pharmacologic to their management, do you recommend any particular warm-up routine or any particular warm-up exercise that helps decrease the impact of EIB during either exercise when they're practicing or during competition? Absolutely. We recommend pretty substantial warm-up period before competition. Studies have shown that uh, high-intensity interval warm-up training before competition has been shown to reduce the severity or frequency of episodes of EIB. It's not predictable, but warming up before competition has a lot of other benefits as well besides asthma and EIB. So yes, we certainly ask them to do a warm-up period. If they're competing in a cold environment, then uh, we advocate for them to wear a mask if they're running out in cold weather or cross-country skiing, for example, um, wearing a mask can be beneficial because it tends to warm and humidify the inspired air before it gets into the lungs. And then if a patient has an, a known allergic trigger, such as freshly cut grass or ragweed, we try to advocate for them to monitor the environments in which they're, they're exercising to try to minimize the effect of environmental triggers uh, on their breathing. That's a great segue to another question. How do you create specific plans uh, according to type of exercise. Let's say you have a swimmer versus a cross-country runner. How do you modify your plan? What specific considerations should we be mindful about when we're thinking about different types of uh, exercise? That's a very common question I get asked. Um, the reality is, is that any athletic exercise can potentially trigger an episode of exercise-induced bronchoconstriction. My experience High-intensity and high-endurance sports are more likely to trigger these EIB episodes to occur. So my approach to specific athletic populations is everybody has to have access to a rescue inhaler at all times, and that can become more 
difficult if you're a cross-country runner or a long-distance runner who's doing a, uh, a run out and back, so to speak. A lot of times patients will get out three or four miles into their run and their inhaler might be in their car or in their gym bag. So we, and those types of athletes, really stress that they need to, to have that inhaler with them while they're competing. Swimmers oftentimes will have more issues as well, especially those that compete in older, poorly ventilated natatoriums or pools. So that, that's another population that we really stress that they have to have access to their inhaler at all times. The most important message I would say about this is that, um, excuse me, we should encourage uh, exercise in all patients that have any form of asthma. And the ability to exercise is actually a marker of whether or not underlying asthma is well controlled or not. And we should be advocating for these patients to be getting out and doing as much exercise as they want to. I think that's an excellent recommendation. We always try to facilitate improved exercise performance and also help our patients understand how they, they can cope with their symptoms. In addition to these uh, recommendations, that you have discussed. Do you have any specific uh, advice for children, families, and clinicians before starting exercise in patients that have established an established asthma diagnosis? That's a great question, Jose. I feel that we have to educate uh, our patients at the outset of their diagnosis so they understand that exercise should be something they should be able to do even though they have a diagnosis of asthma. I'm not sure we're always as good as we could be in terms of encouraging patients with asthma to exercise, especially children. What happens in kids often is that they get symptomatic during exercise and then they tend to avoid doing it. And so when we're taking an asthma history in that population, we really need to take an exercise uh, history to make sure that they're adequately able to do physical activity without symptoms. Well, I have really enjoyed talking to you about exercise-induced bronchoconstriction, and also some of the effects of exercise in established asthma. Before we depart, um, I wanted to ask you for any closing remarks on uh, the specifics of exercise-induced asthma and exercise-induced bronchoconstriction. I think I'd just like to reinforce the message that the ability to exercise and perform physical activity is a marker of whether or not underlying asthma is controlled or not. And so I think we really need to take that history when we're evaluating asthma control, both in children and adults, to make sure that they're adequately able to perform physical activity uh, without symptoms. Thank you so much, Jonathan. And on behalf of AII, we really appreciate your participation in this podcast and also lending us your expertise and teaching us about how we can take better care of our patients with exercising this bronchoconstriction and asthma. Jose, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for having me.